New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. It's my experience that truth is often spoken more clearly in fiction than in nonfiction. For sure, it can be more eloquent and can more effectively get past the barriers of our habitual objections of the mind. I believe this is the case for the novel The Rowan Tree by Dr. Robert Fuller. New Dimensions has been following the adventures and passions of Dr. Fuller, known as Bob, for close to four decades. We first interviewed him as an educator, then as a Soviet-Russia citizen's diplomat. We had conversations with him about solving world hunger, and in more recent years, he's been sharing his passion regarding the dignitarian movement that is catching fire around the world. Robert Fuller is a physicist, a former president of Oberlin College, and leader of the dignity movement to overcome rankism. He has consulted with Indira Gandhi, met with Jimmy Carter regarding the President's Commission on World Hunger, worked in the USSR to defuse the Cold War, and recently keynoted a Dignity for All conference hosted by the President of Bangladesh. Fuller co-authored the text Mathematics of Classical and Quantum Physics. His books on dignity and rankism include Somebodies and Nobodies, Overcoming the Abuse of Rank. He co-authored with Pamela A. Gerloff, Dignity for All, How to Create a World Without Rankism. And most recently, Religion and Science, A Beautiful Friendship? And the novel, The Rowan Tree. Join us for the next hour as we explore some seminal questions about how we can better live with one another and all livingness on this precious planet with our guest, Dr. Robert Fuller. I'm Justine Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Bob, welcome. Good to be back. It's good to have you back. Golly, we've been sitting across from one another, and you've been sitting across from Michael for for a long, long time now. And as you pointed out before this interview began, this is the first interview that we've done, that New Dimensions has done, that I have done since the passing of Michael. Yes, it's a milestone. It is, and it it seems appropriate that this is the first one after his passing because we have been together and, and gone through so many cycles, and you have gone through so many cycles of what you call 
somebodies and nobodies. Mm-hmm. You've been a somebody as president of Oberlin College, and and then there have been periods of time when you just sort of dropped out, but not dropped out of your own passions and your own curiosity about how the world works and how we can do this better. Right. I, I like to think that one has to be willing to be a nobody to become a new somebody. It's like a resurrection, you know. You have to die to be reborn, and you have to be willing to go without recognition and to be rather unclear about what you're up to for a period of years sometimes until you find a new incarnation for your passion. Do you find that there there is something that you can offer us to help us know what our passion is, such as... I, I think you mentioned in, in your book, The Rowan Tree, know the question you're asking, to really pay attention. What questions you're asking? Can you say something about that, Bob? Yeah, that's the bottom line, is, is if you can find your question, if you can identify it, you, your work is laid out for you. It's answering that question. And amazingly, Once you've been able to formulate a question, you're a lot closer to the answer than you might think. The really hard work is in coming up with a question because we're trained to suppress our own questions because when we admit to them, we lack certainty. And it's a value to be sure of yourself in this society. So we don't want to admit we have questions or that we're questioning something fundamental about the culture or ourselves. But if you can in quiet moments when no one's looking, listen to the nagging doubts that usually are born home by what I call the witness, that, that inner self that watches the rest of us perform and criticizes our performance and criticizes what we're doing and knows when we're being a phony and so on. If, if you can listen to that witness and overhear him, he, he whispers, he doesn't yell, but he's a truth teller. And, and you will then be able to get closer to saying your question out loud. And that's helpful, too, to actually put it, put it maybe even write it down, say yeah. it out loud. And- say it out loud, write it down, and then perfect it, because the first uh, draft of your question won't be quite your real question. I, I learned this from the physicists I worked with uh, in early in my career, they were all question askers and recognized the gold in a question and taught me that once you have your question really nailed down, you're much closer to the answer than you might have thought. So that's a very long way towards getting an answer is knowing the question. And one of the most famous physicists of the 20th century, Niels Bohr, who's the father of atomic physics, he said, not so modestly, he said, the reason I'm so successful is because I make my mistakes faster than other people and reformulate the problem, come up with a better question, pursue that. Going back to your childhood, uh, you mentioned in, in the book, I think, Science and Religion, you mentioned an incident that happened, which really, back in the third grade, that broke the spell of, of books that books had on you. And I, I just loved hearing that. And that really launched you in some way mm-hmm. to question. So can you tell that story, please? Sure. Uh, 
I lived in a little town in New Jersey, which was very unusual in that it contained the greatest science lab in the world, Bell Telephone Laboratories, which in the 40s and 50s and 60s was the best lab in the world. Inventions came out of there that changed the world, inventions like the transistor and the solar cell, which my dad invented, by the way. Wow. And that meant that I grew up in a very scientific culture. I mean, I mowed the grass of the guy who got the Nobel Prize for the transistor. And I knew that he was kind of a jerk, you know, actually. <laughs> but he was world famous. So this is a long way of getting to the anecdote, which is I, my parents thought that their sons should go to Sunday school just to be exposed to that way of looking at the world. So we had to do this from kindergarten through eighth grade. Then we were free to choose. And in Sunday school, I was taught a bunch of supposed truths by the Sunday school teacher. And when I questioned her, like, for example, about how could Jesus walk on water, you know, and, and how could he, let alone, how could he rise from the dead? She didn't have good answers for those questions. Um, in contrast to my science teacher in my public school, she generally did have good answers to questions and could explain things in a way that was more satisfying. Uh, until one day, she presented uh, the planets going around the sun, all nine of them, and in our book there was a picture that showed them going around the sun in circles, a simplified Copernican view of the sun being at the center. And on every orbit, it listed the speed of the planet, which you could easily figure out because it was just the circumference of the orbit divided by the time it took to do one lap. So for the Earth, it was, we're 93 million miles from the sun. It was two pi times that would be the distance we'd travel in a year, and the time it took was a year. So you could figure out how fast the Earth was going. So I went home and tried to recreate the number in the book and calculated the circumference, which was just multiplying by 2 pi, which we just learned about pi, and uh, divided by the 365 days, and it didn't agree with what was in the book. So I did the same calculation for Mars and Venus. They didn't agree either. So I did all the rest of the planets, all nine of them. None of them agreed. I thought I must be doing it wrong, so I took it to my father. And he checked it, and he said, the book is wrong. <laughs> and this was astounding. I mean, I thought books were always right. We all did. And when I brought this up with a teacher, she, she wanted to talk about it in whispers. She didn't want the class to get wind of the fact that the book could be wrong because she thought its authority came from always being right. So that, that was a great learning experience for me, that books could be wrong. It, as you said, Justine, it broke the spell of the written word. And it broke the spell of the Bible, among other things. Maybe it could be wrong, I thought. If my science book could be wrong, maybe, maybe the Bible, which had some very implausible things in it, miracles, maybe they could be wrong. So I, I had early on be, became very open-minded about it. Uh, not that everything in either book was wrong. Most things were right. But maybe they could contain mistakes. Well, I, I often think of Bucky Fuller and the story he tells that 
it wasn't until he was maybe four years old that they fitted him for glasses. Mm-hmm. And that's when suddenly the world came into a different focus for him, completely different focus. He thought that there was a reality over here, and this is how the world looked. And then he was fitted for glasses, and suddenly he saw a different one. And like your story, it like launches you on a trajectory that's uh, that isn't going to change. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it's almost like a the starting gate, and now you're really out there, and now everything is different in some yeah, way. Yeah, it, it made me somewhat skeptical to realize that the book could be wrong on something quite simple that a third grader could calculate, and. Uh, I didn't quite finish the story. My teacher wrote the publisher, and the next year the the book came back and it had my numbers in it. I knew those were right because I calculated them. They took all their wrong numbers out. They admitted it. That was a great thing, too, because that showed me that you can not only be skeptical, you can change the conventional wisdom. And so it set me, as you said, on a path of meeting implausible ideas with a kind of healthy skepticism and trying to work stuff out for myself. And I think I've, I've been on that path ever since third grade. You, you mentioned in science and religion how the difference between humans and other species. Can you say something about that? Well, uh, yeah, in, in the book I... I remember growing up and and taking it for granted that people were completely different from dogs and cats and cows and horses and mosquitoes. Before we launch too much into that, (laughs) we're going to come back to that in just one moment. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Bob. That's okay. But I'm here with Bob Fuller. He's the author of Religion and Science, A Beautiful Friendship? and the novel The Rowan Tree. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Robert Fuller, and if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, robertworksfuller.com, robertworks, W-O-R-K-S, that's his middle name, fuller.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Bob, we were just talking about what is a, what's the main difference between humans and other species. I, I've been trying to figure that out my whole life, and because I started off thinking we were really different from other animals, really special. I mean, we talked, and they didn't seem to. 
we uh, painted pictures and they didn't seem to. But, but as I've gotten older, I've come to think we're much more like other animals than different. We, we differ only in one respect. And, and that is, we're what I call model builders. We build models of things. We build representations of things. And we study the representations to get power over what they represent. Another way of saying it is, we build machines. Now, animals do build tools. They even build simple machines. But they don't build computers. They don't build television sets and cars. So, while feeling very humbled by how much we are like animals and recognizing that they do communicate, that they do have feelings and emotions, that they do uh, have communities and rules and all sorts of things that we have too, there is this one way in which it's not a unique thing thing, but we are exceptionally good at building machines, this particular animal called Homo sapiens. And these machines save a lot of lives and they cost a lot of lives. They're, they're for good and they're for bad. So they do everything we do. They sow and they reap and they save lives and they kill. And uh, for better or worse, we're the machine-building animal. We have to come to terms with it. Right. And I'm, I'm thinking, too, that is we make pictures of ourselves, and there's, some have said that then we live into those pictures. Yes. So we, we imagine ourselves first. And that's what you're trying to do, trying to right. imagine ourselves in a, a new way, in a different way that we really haven't thought of before, and that's your whole work with the Dignitarian Movement. Can you say something about that? Well, let, let me go back to the citizen diplomacy okay. era, which is the perfect way to illustrate that maxim that you, you quoted of Iris Murdoch, who said, man is a creature who makes pictures of himself and then comes to resemble the picture. And the citizen diplomacy movement consisted of thousands of Americans, a lot of them in California, going to the Soviet Union very regularly and acting as if the Cold War were over. That was the key. So, for example, I took my family on the Trans-Siberian, and we rode back and forth, and we talked to hundreds of Russians in English because they spoke English and we didn't speak Russian. And we acted as if the Cold War were silly, and there was no need for it, and it was very dangerous, and we acted as if it were over. Ten years later, it was over. It was kind of a miracle. But it was over. We began in the late 70s, and by the 90s, the Cold War was history. I remember, Bob, being, you were on New Dimensions years ago, and you really challenged us at that time. You said, look, forget taking a vacation to Hawaii <laughs> or the Caribbean. Forget that. Take your vacations to the USSR. And you no. really put, you, you handed down the gauntlet, and you said, <laughs> yeah, this is what we should be doing. That's right. I, I remember coming home from my first trip with, with that idea that if enough people took their va next vacation to the USSR, there'd be no hot war. We would never fire these missiles in anger. And it, we're, the idea really had an important antecedent. The Freedom Riders rode buses through the South, blacks and whites together, acting as if segregation were over. And 10 years later, it was over, too. So I think there's great merit. It's, it's akin to performance art. 
of acting as if uh, a certain vision had replaced the status quo, that the consensus had been overthrown, that we'd stopped a certain category of abuse, acting as if that were true even before it's true. And it will help other people live their way into that new way of being. How do you feel right now as things are heating up, let's say with Iran right now, how, how can that help us in, in working with Iran? What would you suggest that we do as, as the media is starting to beat the drums and things mm-hmm. are heating up? What, what would you suggest? Well, uh, there, there, it's too bad there is not a bigger citizen diplomacy effort between America and Iran. I think it could play a part in avoiding the nuclearization of the Middle East, which is really what's at stake in the Iran thing. Uh, I don't have a a simple prescription for it. Nobody does. Nobody's been able to find a way to negotiate our way to a real uh, happy solution to that one. And it's very hard to see how it's going to turn out. But at least uh, the President Obama is willing to listen. And uh, he's done a lot of it. And... We'll have to see how it turns out. I have no magic bullet for that one. It's it's too complicated. I like what you say. There, I, I can't even remember which book it's in. Maybe it's in that religion and science book, but um, where you talk about how if we had a group of people, professionals who in uh, lots of different fields, social sciences and 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 other fields that they get together and they have to come up with ideas, otherwise they're not going to get paid. <laughs> and I like that that idea of putting some really good minds yeah. together and with good intentions from many different fields of endeavor and let them really count, work out some new models that mm-hmm. we can paint on the wall and then live into them. Right. This is what we're good at is building models and building new models. And if you had 20 experts trying to come up with a governance system, for example, in which everyone's dignity was protected, and you gave them that constraint on their model building, build a model of governance in which we have equal dignity and everyone's dignity is secure, and and locked them in a room and said, we're going to feed you as you come up with this model, they come up with some darn good stuff, people drawn from all walks of life. Right, right. Because we we need to move past the the uh, present day one person one vote model of democracy. It's it's a great it's the best system we've anyone's come up with so far, but it's not good enough for the twenty first century. And and like institutions are are very slow to change. They're not yeah. really responding to the globalization or interconnectedness of right. of the world now. Is is that a fair statement? It certainly is. The the interconnectedness is becoming manifest to everyone, and yet we're still acting as if we're pitting self against self and nation against nation. I mean, we're really in this boat together, and we're all going to sink, or we're all going to sail. So the interconnectedness is something that has to be uh, built into our governance structures more than it is. Now, we're not, we, we probably don't want now to go into the details of that, but th- that's part of what the Rowan Tree is about. It's about, it begins as a campus romance, but it ends up being a search for a system of global governance that could work 
in the early 20, first half of the 21st century. And in, in that, you really go into the dignitarian movement, which is something yeah. very close to your heart. And you, you really have been the one who coined that phrase. Like, uh, you, you talk about it's really important if we're going to change um, something, cure a malady of some sort, we need to give it a name like Betty Friedan gave uh, for the women's movement the term sexism. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you have come up with a dignitarian, or can you say something well, the, about that? Uh, the, the dignity movement, you, you have to know, for a movement to succeed, you have to know what it's for and what it's against. And in the case of the civil rights movement and the women's movement, people were for equal, fair treatment and justice for both races and both genders. And they were against, what were they against? Well, we needed words to say what they were against. And way back in the beginning of the 20th century, someone came up with the word uh, racialism. We're against racialism. Well, that was shortened to racism. And when Betty Friedan wrote her great book in 63 called The Feminine Mystique, there was, they didn't know what they were against. In fact, that book does not have the word sexism in it. The title of the first chapter of her book is The Problem Without a Name. It didn't have a name, nor did Betty give it one. Actually, it was another younger feminist who gave it a name, and she called it sexism. And how did people respond to that name? They hated it. They wouldn't use the word. Even women were reluctant to use the word because it made them seem like uppity women. But gradually the word took hold, and now it's uh, in the lexicon. You hear it on the radio every day. And once you have a name, you know what you're against. And that's why I coined the word rankism, to show what people who are for dignity are against. They're against abuses of rank, which is the cause of indignity. Most man-made indignities are caused by someone abusing their power, by a person who takes himself for a somebody, taking someone else for a nobody, and pulling rank on that person and humiliating them or indignifying them. That's the source of rankism. So we now know what we're against. We're against abuses of rank or rankism, and what we're for is equal dignity for all. Now, you don't mean that rank is bad in and of itself. I do not. So, You're right. So, yes. Rank is okay. Uh, your father outranks you. Your professor, if you're a student, outranks you. Your doctor outranks you. At least he better. She better. Uh, you, you count on that differential in rank when you seek expertise. So rank isn't the culprit. It is, however, so very often abused that we tend to think it is the culprit. So one of the first impulses of young people is to make everybody the same rank, which was an impulse in communism, too. And they call everybody comrade. Well, it was, uh, it was a joke because actually it was a police state and people were of highly unequal rank. In fact, one person outranked everybody and his name was Stalin. We saw where that went. Uh, rank is very often abused, but in itself, in its pure meaning, it simply means, it simply acknowledges someone's experience or expertise in a given area. And it's a useful organizational tool. When you don't have any rank, when everyone has equal rank, you often get bogged down in endless meetings and uh, can't reach a decision. 
So it's rankism that is the culprit. So rankism, yes. I'm here with Robert Fuller. He's the author of The Rowan Tree and also Religion and Science of Beautiful Friendship question mark and um, that's also an ebook that's available as an ebook is that right That's yeah, right yeah. both books are available as ebooks and as print on demand books at Amazon Great and if you'd like to know more about the work of Bob you can go to his website robertworksfuller.com robertworks w o r k s Fuller.com, or you can get to uh, his website through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Robert Fuller, and we're talking about many things, including uh, the dignitarian movement and religion and science and all sorts of other subjects. But let's go back to religion and science. Uh, in, in your book, Religion and Science, A Beautiful Friendship, question um, mark, you talk about you talk it about it in a different way than, let's say, uh, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or others who are just saying, let's just throw religion out. You're not going that path. You're, you're coming at it as you're a scientist, you're a trained physicist, so you have that whole background, and yet you bring in the possibility of religion having some sort of friendship with science. So let's talk about that. How did you arrive at that? I arrived at that because of the 60s. Uh, The 60s were a time of of transformation in America. And one of the great positive forces for change in America in the 60s turned out to be the churches, turned out to be religion itself. This isn't to say religion is always on the right side. In fact, before religion opposed segregation and championed the civil rights movement, it was against uh, integration. It, it favored segregation in the South and elsewhere in the country. But then something happened, and the leader of the civil rights movement, whose birthday is now a national holiday, was a minister. So I saw in religion an ally for some of my political work, a crucial ally, because nothing changed in America until religion got on the right side of those issues. And we're seeing the same thing happen with regard to uh, marriage equality now, where religion is doing a flip-flop from being against it to being for it, and suddenly everybody's for it. And you're talking about, like, uh, gay marriages? Is that what Mm -hmm. you're talking about? Yeah, marriage Uh equality, so that it's between two people and doesn't say what genders they are or anything else about them. Any two people can make a, a marriage if they're old enough. So... That's been a change of attitude where religion is finally playing a really important role in consolidating that a new consensus. Uh, 
So religion can be a great ally of change, and this is not an accident because from the get-go, religion had a few principles that really dictate uh, an end to segregation and racism. They really make it necessary that we treat people equally regardless of gender, regardless of disability or sexual orientation. Religion, after all, came up with the idea of equal dignity for everybody. That's a religious idea. And it came up with that uh, in several different contexts, in China, in India, in the Middle East, in Judaism and Christianity. They all have either a God or a power which looks upon every soul as equal to every other soul. And that's the origin of the equal dignity idea, that everyone's inherent worth is the same, that if there's one father figure or God, as it's often called in religious parlance, God looks equally on all his children. He doesn't play favorites. So, The idea of equal dignity, which is what the movements, the identity movements have all been about, can be found in religion thousands of years ago. The golden rule is another expression of it. How can you believe in segregation or discrimination against gays if you apply the golden rule and try to live by it? Because it says you wouldn't do anything to anyone else that you didn't want them to do to you. Well, you don't want to be discriminated against, so how can you discriminate against anyone else? I mean, the golden rule and the equal dignity idea are extremely powerful ideas that shape politics forever afterwards. Now, they don't shape it overnight or in two years. They shape it in two millennia. Mm -hmm. It's a long, slow process, but it does work. And and you point out in your books uh, that they run across religions worldwide. They're not just a Christian per se. They're universal discoveries. They're as, I think, if E equals MC squared is the jewel in the crown of physics, the golden rule is the jewel in the crown of religion. And it can go toe-to-toe with the great discoveries of science as having shaped uh, human civilization. So, In contrast to Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Dennett, I take the point of view that, sure, religion has made a lot of mistakes, but so is science. If they differ, it's because science admits its mistakes more quickly and gets rid of them and moves on. Uh, Religion has a tendency, unfortunately, to cling to mistakes beyond the time when they've been disproven or to fight new truths unnecessarily. I mean, both religion and science have babies in their bathwater, but religion drains its tub more, uh, science drains its tub more often. Mm -hmm. And so the gleaming babies are left there for everybody to see and applaud. Babies like equals MC squared, babies like Newton's laws, and babies like uh, Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism. Tremendous power in these models that we human beings have come up with. And uh, religion's models, such as an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, there's a model of justice that has served the world very well. It may need some tweaking here and there, uh, but 
as as times continue, as history flows on, you need to tweak some of these aphorisms, some of these maxims. Uh, but nonetheless, they provide enormous guidance for centuries and millennia. And the golden rule still, which which has a deep symmetry about it, that uh, what I do to you, what you do to me, have to be held in the same framework and looked at together. There's a symmetry in that, just as there is in the laws of physics. And I, I think you point out that in science, it, the, the rule in science is you, you develop a model yeah. and you kind of put it out there and it's okay to criticize it and it's okay to defend it. And right. you should defend it. But when that defense no longer is valid, then you set it aside or at least you go to a a, a larger landscape. Maybe it's yeah. contained within... A larger landscape, then. Right, like Newton's laws, are still true when applied to baseballs and automobiles and middle-sized objects. But Newton's laws break down when they're applied to the whole universe or when they're applied to atoms. When you get very big and heavy or very small and, and light, Newton's laws don't work. But they still work perfectly for everything in between. So we need quantum theory and we need general relativity to cover the two fringes. And... In that sense, Newton's laws have been disproven. They don't work for everything, but they, where they do work, we can keep them. And where they don't work, we overthrow them and replace them with new models. But you're also saying that religion is not so quick to, yeah. to throw out the old models yeah. or to, to transcend the old models. Right, it isn't. And, and you could, could wonder, why is that? Because religion is really just building models, too. You can attribute their models to divine origin and to Moses finding them carved in stone on a mountain. Or you could think that people living in communities gradually noticed that adultery and murder and theft and so on were very disruptive and caused all sorts of ill effects. And so they came up with the idea that we should disallow those activities and put them in the Ten Commandments. And, uh, they could have been discovered empirically, in other words, mm -hmm. over many, many generations of watching what worked and what, uh, what, what worked in a society and what uh, discombobulated a society, what, what made for such internal dissension that the society was no longer able to defend itself against other societies. And religion plays a very important role in building the solidarity of given societies, which is necessary if you want to protect yourself against the predation of other societies. So that's one reason religion outlasts science models, because it has a role in ensuring solidarity of the group. And sometimes it's better to all believe in something wrong than to all believe in different things entirely. But if something is really wrong, Bob, yeah. uh, let's say a, a Stalin or um, a Hitler or something, eventually it won't hold together. Right. It, it doesn't seem, at least in observing something, it, it can't. It doesn't continue. It's not self. Um, Oh, I, I don't know the word self-holding. It, mm -hmm. it, it lacks integrity. It, yeah. And it falls apart. Well, so, so too with, with certain religious doctrines that have, for example, when religion clung to the idea of a geocentric solar system with the earth at the center and the sun circling the earth, 
that came under more and more criticism and finally has fallen away or or that that God built all the animals and the earth in 6,000 years. Models like that, while initially they offered some explanation of what we saw, were gradually superseded by all sorts of evidence that showed that those models weren't so good. But even recently, it's not until recent that the Catholic Church apologized for imprisoning Galileo or right, something, you know, right. I mean, it took, you it know, t- how- it took 300 years and it, it shouldn't have taken that long. For, that, 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 that's a disservice to religion to cling to, to false models of, of natural world. And interestingly, the Dalai Lama has said when Buddhism and science disagree, Buddhism will have to change. He flat out said that in the New York Times in an op-ed, and that's a very healthy attitude towards good science. I mean, there's bad science, Mm -hmm. too, and you don't need to change and bow down to that. But overall, science has a way of weeding out the mistakes quite rapidly. But one of the things that have come up is is, uh, some of the evangelical religions are, are now saying... Yeah, climate change is a real thing. It's you mm-hmm. know, and they're they're we're starting to see them get on board to say, yeah, we need to look at the environment and take care of the environment. Right, and and I think another confusion it comes from this. It's that, say for example, evangelicals will criticize evolution, and they'll say it's not infallible. And what scientists should respond to that kind of accusation with is to say, of course it's not infallible. Of course Darwinism is a theory. What else could it be? But it's a good theory. It's the best we've got so far. Don't take the point of view as a scientist that your theory is the truth. It's just your best model that you have for now until we can find a better one. And in that way, you're less arrogant, less uh, out to humiliate the opposition. Just point out that Darwinism is a good theory for building antibiotics. It's a good theory for agriculture. Without it, we shoot ourselves in the foot. I'm here with Dr. Robert Fuller, and he's the author of Religion and Science, A Beautiful Friendship? And also the novel The Rowan Tree, And if you'd like to be in touch with him, you can go to his website, robertworksfuller.com, robertworks, W-O-R-K-S, fuller.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Robert Fuller, and we're talking about dignity. We're talking about citizens' diplomats. We're talking about the shifts that are going on on the planet today. And, Bob, one of the guiding lights for you throughout all of your career, throughout all the time that I've known you, which has been almost 40 years now, has been your commitment to deep listening. I've noticed through the years that that has been a passion and something, a guiding light for you. Can you say something about that? Yes, I I think in listening and questioning, we actually learn something we don't already know. In speaking, we may be reinforcing something we already know, but that's about as far as it gets. We're basically saying things that we already believe. And, and so you, one needs to watch the ratio between speaking and listening. When you're listening, uh, or if, let's say the person's boring, then you can make it unboring by asking a good question and redirect it. So it's not that you listen without any regard for the quality of what you're hearing. You're a co-creator of that conversation, and you can make it more interesting and I, re- I remember discovering this in grade school, that students, fellow students who the teacher thought were dumb and who my classmates made fun of, I found them very interesting if I went onto their turf. I mean, they ha- lived on chicken farms. Their father ran a gas station. Their father was a banker. Uh, or their their mother was a nurse. You could learn all sorts of new stuff you didn't already know by questioning your classmates and everybody else in sight. And so, yes, I, I guess I am guilty of that. And uh, it's it's been called uh, being an ontological vampire, which is <laughs> you you enter into another person's world and almost steal their being by going into that world so deeply that you become one for a while. And then when you leave, you're larger than you were when you went in. You're changed by it. You're changed because you've soaked up or absorbed some of the way they see the world. And I think that was what made New Dimensions itself such so valuable for these four decades that it's always been centered around the idea of listening very carefully and asking questions that give the guest a chance to say what he already knows. And sometimes on these shows, I've discovered brand new stuff because Michael or you would ask questions that uh, I'd never thought of before, and they, they affected my work subsequently. Well, I know that Michael really appreciated your work, and, and several times in past decades, he would be part of a, a board of directors, and they were having trouble. He would call you in as as the the troubleshooter <laughs> because of that very quality that you would bring to the process of that deep listening. And there's a kind of fairness about that. There's a kind of justice mm-hmm. in that because you, you would come in without prejudging this situation, and that was always very inspiring to watch that unfold when 
people are at loggerheads with one another. It's a wonderful way. It's a one. It's it's more than mediation. It's something yeah, else. Yeah, it, it has to do with figuring out where each party is right, and and that's what this book, Religion and Science, is about. It's trying to figure out what's right and valuable in each of these great traditions, and let go. It's easier to let go of what's wrong in the tradition if you've captured what's right about it. And that's why I object to books like Christopher Hitchens' book. All it does is focus on what's wrong with religion. Well, we could have a book that focuses on what's wrong with science, too, and it wouldn't be very useful. Uh, Both traditions are full of mistakes, and the main thing is to learn to let go of them more quickly and move on to the good stuff. And that's the way it is in, say, if an organization is breaking down because there are two factions in it in profound disagreement with each other. What you've got to do is listen carefully enough to identify what truth is each faction protecting. And once you've put that into words, they'll let go of a lot of the stuff that they've been arguing for, but is inessential to guaranteeing the survival of the truth that they are responsible for protecting. So there is a trick in that, and and that is learning to ask better questions. Mm-hmm. So I right. I want I want to aspire <laughs> to learning to ask better questions. So what advice do you have to help us in that sense? Well, sometimes the questions have to be a little rude. Uh, you know, and that keeps you from asking them. They feel a little risky asking certain questions. And and you have to try and create the opportunity to ask them nonetheless, because that's where you'll, there's something uncomfortable that you're avoiding. And when you can feel that in yourself and then find a gentle enough way into it that doesn't blame the other person, but invites them to discuss that thing that was initially uncomfortable, then then you're on the right track. You feel it when it happens. You feel a kind of opening up. Right. And if you try it with someone and they back off, then you've misplayed the opportunity. Then you need to wait and, and look for another way to get back to that area of discomfort. Because the new truths always lie in an area of initial discomfort. I can remember reading something about Einstein where he said that if you had an hour to solve a world problem, he said that uh, he, he would spend the first 55 minutes discovering the right question to ask, and then you could solve it in five minutes. And, mm-hmm. But it's, it's a matter of coming up with a the right question. Right. One way you might do this is to invite the other person to whom you're asking questions, invite them to ask questions of themselves and of you, and make the question-asking part more mutual. Uh, instead of an interrogation. Yeah, instead of one, an interrogation. Looking for the right... It's a game of looking for the right question, looking for the productive question. Bob, going back to dignity, um, there's something that you point out. I think it was in in Rowan Tree. I mean, you know, both books are just kind of blending in my mind right now, and they're just both so so interesting and fascinating. And going back to that, you point out in that whole 
feeling of dignity. We don't know we e- even need it or until it's been somehow coerced or somehow we've been stepped upon. And, yeah. and you bring out something, Just I, I, I call it this, that, that awful, the stand-up cocktail party. I call it that, that mm-hmm. syndrome where you're in a group of people and you don't know each other. And oftentimes, there's that moment when you just feel like something's off here. You feel self-protective. Mm-hmm. Can, can you describe that? Well, that, that, that's the cocktail party where people sidle up to you and, and try to find out your rank in society. So they have uh, questions like, what do you do? And where did you go to school? And, uh, who, or who are you with? Meaning your identity derives from the organization you're a part of. And that way you find out if, if the person has any allies or not, in which case they're more powerful. If they work at Google, they're more powerful than if they work at an ice cream parlor. And so we have all those ways of probing for other people's status. And those can make you feel like a wallflower or like a nobody if you're subjected to those questions at a stand-up party. It's so immediate, too. You feel it immediately. You you start to get defensive. I know. It's one reason we seek status. It's to protect ourselves from those kind of humiliations. We want to be able to be on a par with other people. Other, but some people have a wonderful quality of being able to treat everybody they meet as a somebody. And they don't need to find out where you went to college or, or what kind of car you drive. And they're not looking to see if you have a class tie on or if, if you're, you're observing the current uh, styles. You just feel they're connecting at a level of human to human where rank isn't an issue. Although, again, I want to say rank, rank is okay. You, you don't solve rank problems by getting rid of rank. When you go into your doctor's office, the doctor outranks you. Not so much as he used to, by the way. When I was a kid, <laughs> doctors really outranked me. They could give orders. Now yeah. my doctor is my partner in my health. Yeah, that's true. So that's a big change, It's too. a big change where rank has been. But still, I only go for the expertise that right. they have. Uh, and so I am honoring some rank differential. But anyway, that, that whole somebody-nobody game that we play, it really is on its last leg. So you have hope for the future. Uh, I, I do. I think we're going to come to regard everyone we meet as a somebody. There will be no more nobodies. We will finally complete the identity politics movements of the 60s when we disallow rankism along with racism, sexism, homophobia, and ageism, and ableism. All the other isms are are already in the doghouse. All we have to do is usher rankism in the doghouse with them, and we'll have equal dignity for all on the planet. We'll go out on that one. Yes, Bob, thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions once again. It's been a pleasure, Justine. I've been speaking with Dr. Robert Fuller. He's the author of Religion and Science of Beautiful Friendship, question mark, and the novel The Rowan Tree. Both of them are available as ebooks, and you can get to know more about his work by going to his website, robertworksfuller.com, robertworks, W-O-R-K-S, fuller.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website newdimensions.org.
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3464. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.